This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. For Inside Carolina, I'm Taylor Vipolis, and you're listening to this podcast, which is a part of the Inside Carolina Podcast Network. On today's episode, I'm joined by my fellow Carolina football letterman, Mike Ingersoll and EJ Wilson to talk about Carolina's loss at Pittsburgh. Before we get started, though, I just wanted to say thank you for being here. Be sure you subscribe to Inside Carolina wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube so you never miss out on any of the content the team at IC puts out. The support doesn't go unnoticed on this end. Speaking of support, we want to support the people that support us. So that's why I've got to mention our friends over at Johnny T-Shirt. When it comes to Carolina Apparel, they have everything that you could possibly want. They have the t-shirts, the jerseys, the hats, you name it. They probably have it. It's basketball season. So if you're going to be in Chapel Hill now, stop on over at Johnny T-Shirt on Franklin Street. It's great people, great customer service since it's locally owned and operated by alumni. If you can't get to Chapel Hill, you can visit them online at johnnytshirt.com. And don't forget, Inside Carolina premium subscribers get 10% off their orders. All right. As always, it's Mike Ingersoll and EJ Wilson. Guys, we talked about a win last week, so you know. It's only right this week we're talking about a loss. Carolina loses in overtime to Pittsburgh, 30-23. to 23. EJ, let's get started with you. What were your biggest takeaways? Our biggest takeaways, uh, number one, is that I think that we may have uh, – this is one of the tougher uh, Carolina defenses that I think that we've had. Maybe it's not showing up by the physicality on the field, but the mental toughness and the mental fortitude of these guys has to be commended. I mean, we've come on here, and, of course, uh, we, we, we know ourselves we can be a tad pessimistic sometimes, and definitely the fans on the message boards have noticed that. But I don't want uh, it to be to be thought that – we're ragging on these guys or we don't like what we see. It's just that when you see all these things put together, when all the pieces are there, when the will and the want to are there, when the talent is there, when the coaching is schematically is not there and things aren't being executed, it kind of gets frustrating. Um, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Exactly. 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 It wasn't that the worst thing a parent could ever say to you. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. And EJ Um, is, and EJ is their daddy. <laughs> well, let's. <laughs> I, I, I think we'll leave that there. Mike is going from Greek mythology to romance novels over here. So, um, <laughs> second takeaway is that uh, I think we're becoming one of those schools that if you hold us under fifty, you have a good chance to beat us. I mean, it, it, there's no. I, I really don't see understand if you had told me two weeks ago from the way some of the defensive performances that we saw that our defense would hold a team scoreless in the second half, one of the top offenses in the ACC scoreless in the second half um, and given our chance, our offense a chance to go out there and take the lead with our offense really winning the time of possession battle and, and we lose that game. I wouldn't have believed you, but um, it's, it's like we're kind of finding new ways to win every week. And um, 
third my, my, my third major takeaway is that I'm really excited once again about some of these young guys that we have in our defense. These guys are consistently stepping up. Um, we actually saw some guys winning on pass rushes. We saw guys working moves, working hands. So I was really good to see that. But um, I, I'm 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 not as down on this defense as I once was. This I think is our best. May not have been a win, but I think is our best uh, performance against uh, some top tier competition. So overall. Um, not too disappointed in what I saw. Definitely would have liked to leave out of there with the win, but um, maybe we got to start scoring some points now and be the offense. <laughs> That's that, that, if, if there was ever an overreaction, that was it. That was just a joke, people. <laughs> Mike, what about you? What were your biggest takeaways from Thursday's game? Uh, penalties killed us on both sides of the ball. Yeah. Pen- penalties were defense's problem in the first half. They were offense's problem in the second half, uh, particularly in the red zone and the tight red. I mean, we're talking on the two-yard line back-to-back possessions. One of them was to win the game. Luckily, we managed to, to scrape out one of them. Uh, you know, we got had an offsides penalty. It backed us up to the seven. Uh, we managed to get um, – managed to score the touchdown. Sam was able to sneak the ball over the plane of the goal line, you know, by the, you know, by the hair of a lace on that football. He was able to get that touchdown in. The next possession, we weren't so lucky. Um, had to settle for a field goal. You know, same thing. We're on a two-yard line. Penalty backs us up and we don't really recover from it got to kick a field goal that was to, that was the go-ahead drive ended up just tying the game as opposed to going ahead um, to win it so penalties killed us so that's situational football uh, the other the other major issue is what I've been talking about all year long and it, it's it's in the same vein as what I just mentioned short yardage situations we're terrible and I don't understand what the problem is we can't get two yards when we need to get it um, you know, we were converting when we didn't jump off sides or we didn't do something dumb. We converted more short yardage situations against Pitt than I than I'd seen previous on a more consistent basis. Once you got out of the first quarter into the second quarter and throughout the rest of the game, when we're in our short yardage situations, the handful, the sprinkling of times we had those opportunities, we converted them when we were on schedule and we didn't do dumb things. But we're, we we had so many penalties in those situations, too, that it's almost a wash. Um, so the good things we did in short yardage were negated by dumb things we did like penalties that have nothing to do with handing the ball off, have nothing to do with executing the play call. It's all just concentration, uh, and, and doing what you're supposed to do pre-snap. And we failed in that regard. And we failed in, uh, the, the biggest situations back to back at the end of that game in that game. Luckily we came away with a touchdown, like I said, in one of those situations and the other, we, we didn't, and we should have, and it should have been a win and we should have never had to play for overtime to begin with. Um, and that comes down to penalties. So my takeaways are, look, we, we've got a this late in the season, you can't be having stuff like that. Uh, I said in the postgame thing with Ross, look, we're, Carolina's playing in front of 1,700 people up there in Pittsburgh. Like, they're not playing in front of – that's not, that's it's not, not Death Florida. Valley. That's not Death Valley. It's not mm-hmm. Florida State when it's bumping. It's certainly not Lane Stadium. Like, it's, it's like for real, like 2,000 people. Like, and they've got other stuff they're going to go do. Like, they've, they've got a city to go party in afterwards. Like, they're not really there because they want to be there. They're there because there's nothing else to do. Okay, that's a Pittsburgh college football crowd. Um, that should not have created the types of problems we saw in terms of pre, pre-snap penalties. Um, but for whatever reason, it did. And we didn't handle the moment well. So, you know, penalties, mental errors, not being able to handle the lights, that's one problem. Uh, takeaway number two is short yardage is still an issue and it's going to continue to be an issue for the next couple of weeks. Obviously. I mean, you may see some issues crop up against Wofford. Definitely going to see them crop up against state. Hopefully, you know, they don't bite us the way they bit us against Pitt, and we come out of the season with, you know, two more wins. 
Yeah, Carolina had 12 penalties for just over 100 yards, I think, just just way too many. And that kind of ties into my biggest takeaway from this game where it's like you, you see the effort and you see the fight from this team, and now it's on the coaches to try to figure out how they can get this team to play four quarters of disciplined football where it doesn't seem like they start a game sleepwalking. We've seen it at times last year against Virginia Tech. Um, this year against Pittsburgh, where the team just comes out so flat. and they, Virginia they Tech, a, Georgia Tech, Pittsburgh. Yeah, exactly. Even the, the Wake Forest game, to a certain extent, last year and this year, where the team finds itself in, uh, you know, they're down 17 before we even know what's happening. And it's, it's putting a lot of pressure on your offense to try to catch up. It's putting a lot of pressure on your defense that has already been kind of shaky. And I thought the my other biggest takeaway is that the defensive effort we saw on Thursday that was an effort to be really proud of from a group where we've talked about it before where it felt like you couldn't trust them to get any stops they're they're holding the number one scoring offense in the country uh Kenny Pickett and and the Panthers were averaging like 45 points per game for them to shut out Pittsburgh in the third and the fourth quarter uh, like EJ was saying, I don't think anybody saw that coming. And if you saw that coming, you probably bet on it. And you're doing a lot better than any any of us right here, probably retiring on, on <laughs> those winnings. Um, but those are my biggest takeaways where this, this is on the coaches to try to figure out how to get this team ready to play under the lights, where I think they're now either one in seven or one in eight in, in night road games, um, where it's it's the, the team – you, you almost don't recognize them from their home selves and their away selves to start the games or offensively or defensively. And it's, it always feels like one, it has to be one or the other where the defense played really well um, for the majority of that game, but it was the offense that was kind of struggling early and the offense was putting the defense in a lot of bad positions early, but they started to figure it out. But by that time it was uh, a little too late and they even had a chance to win the game, I guess at the end, but EJ, the, the story of the game for everybody is is the defense. When, when you shut out Kenny Pickett and, and Pitt in the second half, everybody's kind of talking about it and trying to figure out, you know, this kind of goes back to the point, like how close is the defense? When when they can have performances like this, they, they must be pretty close. What do you think changed after that first quarter that allowed the defense to make it look like they knew what they were doing and they were going out there and executing? I think we saw a lot of what we were saw when our defense is getting after people and it's, it's stunt, it's stunts up front, it's pass rush games. And, and like Mike was always saying that that's one of the things that our offensive line was struggling with at the beginning of the year and it picked up. I mean, that's something that's tough for most college offensive linemen. I mean, unless you go with it early, we struggled with it in the first half against Pitt too again. But oh, wow. go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, just, just another thing from the past coming back to, to, to sweeten the deal. But it, it, it's a tough situation. And that, that's the reason why those happen. I mean, a lot of people look at pass rush games as an attempt to rush the pass. But no, those games are just as effective in the run game, disturbing, disturbing gaps um, for offensive linemen. A lot of their assignment is not necessarily an area, but but a guy. I mean, and if you're switching these guys, that can be confusing for a guy who, for offensive linemen who's younger or hasn't really had a lot of um, reps doing that so I think that really changed things for us and with some of our and it allows us to kind of play to our strength on defense up front
front, which is the athleticism of some of our big guys up there. And I mean, e- even down to Ray Vohasic, all of our guys can move around. And I think that caused a lot of a lot of things that one, they weren't really used to seeing us on seeing on film. And I don't think really Pitts saw a lot of this season. And we really had a chance to confuse them. I mean, yeah, we gave up a lot of yardage, but we were able to stop them. We, we, we did a lot of bending and not breaking. And honestly, that's really what I like to see from a defense. You I mean, you can't ask guys to go out there and be an Alabama defense and just shut guys out, hold them to 100 total yards for a game. I mean, in, in, in today's college football landscape, especially playing against the number one offense, um, one of the top offenses in the country, you're going to give up some yardage. You're going to give up some plays. They're going to have some success. They're on scholarship just like our guys are. But to hold them out of the end zone for the second half after it looked like um, there were, it was going to be another onslaught was just amazing to me. And, and let's not get it confused. I think our defense played well the whole game. It wasn't just the second half. We were put in some very tough situations in yeah. the beginning of the game. Offense um, didn't help you in the first half. Oh, the, the, they, when, they you, when you're punting from the one yard line, it's things it's are never going to go good for the team. Things have gone awry if you're punting from the from from the one yard line, especially after your first drive. I mean, that that, that was one of those things where I kind of just scratched my head and said, "Well, looks like this is going to be another game and another exercise in futility, and we're going to show how bad we can be." But I mean, we, we I think the defense really held on a long long enough and definitely did. I think more than enough to win that game. I think the only thing that that defense really could have done more of maybe um, is score points. I mean, we got we got a turnover. We, we even up the turnover um, margin maybe score some points, but I, I don't think it's fair for us to go out to expect or ask this defensive unit that we have right now to go out and score points. I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, that's not a defensive job. I mean, the 01 Raiders, I mean, the Giants back in the day, those are some teams. Um, I mean, 01 Ravens, those are some teams where they could count on their defensive score, but they also had Hall of Famers on that defense. I mean, we have some pretty good players, but not guys that are that we think are going to go out there and get six. I mean, Dre Bly and Julius Peppers aren't out there. These aren't – we don't have superhumans out there. Do we have top-notch athletes and, and players I'm excited about in our offense? I mean, on our defense, yeah, I do, but I, I think that we did about as good as we can be expected to, to be at this point of the season. Ten games into the season, based on the performances and, and us knowing who this defense is, that's about as good as I think we can expect them to perform now. But it, it and it still sounds like doom and gloom, but I really am encouraged by what I saw. I mean, I wish we could have saw this a few games ago, some of these performances, and I think our record and our outlook on the rest of the season would have been a little bit different. But I do think we're in a position to finish this season strong. If we can get a similar type uh, defensive performance against Walford, uh, which we damn well should, <laughs> and, and, and the same type of performance against that school in Raleigh, I think we can have a have a good chance of, of playing in a bowl game in Boston at 11 o'clock on a Wednesday morning like we were just talking about. But <laughs> <laughs> but overall, I mean, other than that, I mean, I, I, I just think that the, the guys did a good job of preparing for this game. It was a short turnaround on that week, but we really looked prepared out there. Yeah, we still missed some tackles and made some mistakes, and we're looking at the ball go over our head. But we, we didn't let those mistakes kill us, and we showed a lot of mental fortitude. So my um, hat's off to the, to the defensive performance. I would, I would sign up right now for a football game in a baseball stadium. So give me either the pinstripe ball <laughs> – in the Bronx or give me the Fenway ball in Boston. Um, but the, the defense, they gave the offense a chance to win this game. And if you would have told me that before Wednesday, I would have assumed you were talking about, you know, maybe the defense held Kenny Pickett to 45 points instead of 23 at the end of regulation. Um, so all things considered the defense, the defense did their job uh, 10 times over and it was, 
like I mentioned in my takeaways, I, I think a lot of fans can be proud of what this defense did, especially with what we've seen from them already this year, where they gave up. We, we've mentioned it before. They've given up team highs to almost every team they played against and against the best offense they're going to play all year. They had their best performance where it looks like the later the season goes on from the fourth quarter on at Wake, it seems like something changed with this defense where all of a sudden they're, they understand what they're doing They're They still have their times where they have coverage lapses and um, they have difficulty lining up. But I mean, that's, that's college football. Like nobody, mm-hmm. nobody outside of Georgia right now is lining up with perfection and executing on every, every down and distance, but well, Mike, Pitt only the, put Pitt, Pitt only put together one drive. If you really think about it, <clears throat> they only put together one drive when they had to put together a drive, you know, and march down the field and score a touchdown. They only did that once. It was their first possession. Yeah. The rest of the game, they didn't have like like EJ pointed out. We, the offense, didn't put them in a good in a good situation at all in the first half after that opening possession. So that Pitt was operating on a short field, and you would hope that potential number one quarterback taken, top offense in the ACC. You know, you'd think that, that that team could probably punch a couple in the end zone from a short field, but they only actually put together one drive. So our defense really, if you like EJ mentioned, if you if you look at this in the grand scheme of it, holistically throughout the whole game, that was a very good defensive performance on the whole. And I don't think it's getting the credit that it deserves. So that game, this like the Georgia Tech game uh, and frankly, the Virginia Tech game, this game is on the offense. And for the last two years, I never thought I'd say that more than once in a season that our offense is what screwed us in this game especially when you have somebody like Sam Howell at quarterback but Mike the offense they really struggled out of the gate it looked like the offensive line was having a a rough go of it early where there was really no running lanes in the run game and Sam Howell was just not getting enough time to throw the ball uh five I think they Pitt might have had five sacks in the first half. What were you seeing up front that was causing some of this problem? Was it was it the usual suspects of of issues? It, it was. I mean, I broken record. My, my response is broken record. Next question. <laughs> yeah, we we were losing we were losing individual battles uh, mostly at the tackle spot and pass protection, but you know we were losing them on the inside too. And then I was actually sitting at uh, Oldie's Tap Room, the old Tobacco Road, for the first half. Um, uh, watching it with a buddy of mine who does not understand football nearly to the extent that this brain trust here does. And, uh, and I was explaining to him using uh, oranges and limes on how twist games work right there at the bar uh, after we gave up a, a major sack to a very basic twist that was the direct result of the left tackle not setting vertical on a wide three technique, which is the most obvious you know, a duh set vertical on a three technique, which makes me wonder if they're being taught it. And I, again, I don't know what's being taught in that meeting room. And I'm not going to accuse anybody of not teaching it. Um, Cause I don't know if it's an, if it's an execution lapse or if it's a, if it's a teaching, if it's a fundamentals lapse, um, the culprits of those would obviously be different. Um, so I don't know what the source of that problem is. I just know that it is a problem and it has yet to be corrected. Our tackles are not doing a good job of consistent outside of Josh Azudu, who does it perfectly when he's at the tackle spot. Our tackles don't do a good job of setting vertically on three techniques in, uh, in obvious twist situations. Um, our guards in obvious twist situations don't do a good job of covering up those three techniques. And our tackles and guards 
together do a very bad job of passing those twists off. Our guards don't bump our tackles well. Our tackles aren't typically vertically setting enough in order to be bumped. So they're, you know, they, they have some blame in this too. Um, there is just, there's a major technique lapse. And what you're seeing is it's getting Sam hit a lot and it's, it's bumping us out of field goal range and it's making us have to punt from the one yard line. And I'll say the near safety was not the result of a twist. That was just a green dog from the linebacker. It was a perfectly drawn up. It was a perfectly drawn up green dog. Um, so that wasn't a twist situation, but we had later on in the first half, uh, I think two separate times, Sam was sacked for a major loss because of a blown twist. Um, these are things that we cannot have happen uh, in the future. We're at the end of the season now. So I'm going to talk about for the rest of the year. Can't have it happen in the future. It must get corrected. The new offensive line that's going to be rolling in next season, there should be an absolute focus in the offseason on how to fix twist games, uh, improve your comfort level and your cohesiveness with one another so that we don't see this problem next year with whoever the quarterback is next year. Um, but what I do know is that the first half looked terrible. The second half, from an individual matchup standpoint, from a twist standpoint, looked substantially different. They cleaned it up. The pocket was clean for the most part. Sam had time to throw for the most part. And you saw the, you saw the benefits of that. The offense started clicking. We started putting some drives together. We sputtered in certain moments, but, you know, we were able to throw together big plays. This is a big play offense. I mean, we moved the ball in chunks, and we were able to get those chunks. Um, Antoine Green, two touchdowns, uh, wide open for a touchdown. Um, you know, he, he okey-doked the dude off the line. Pittsburgh has the worst field in the NFL. Thanks to the Panthers getting turf, they now have the official worst field in the NFL. Um so he okey-doked that dude off the line. The dude had bad footing. He fell. Antoine Green's wide open. Touchdown. Next, next touchdown he has. Gets the helmet blown off. Maintains the catch. Concentration. That's a kid. Taylor, I know you're probably going to talk about. His concentration has, 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 has just – it's night and day from what it used to be. He's a totally different player. Um, and that's a confidence thing. That's a reps thing. So I'm glad to see that from him. Um, and he's producing finally. Um, he's, and he's a big play guy. Three, three catches for 100-plus yards and two touchdowns. Antoine Green is every single time he has a big game, it's only for like a couple catches and a couple hundred yards and a couple yeah. touchdowns. Like we keep saying that's every time they said every time for the last two years, he's had a big game. That's been it. Um, but anyway, not, not to, not to, not to get off the O line here the, in the, you know, the, the point is, is the offensive line being able to protect and give Sam that pocket um, and win in one-on-one situations, which was the other problem from the first half, um, you know, one-on-one me versus EJ one-on-one. As an offensive lineman, I got to be able to win that. As a tackle, I got to be able to win that. If we're going to drop back 60 times in a game, a guy like EJ, right, a draft pick, all right, a draft pick defensive end is going to get me, all right, a handful of times. But he can't get me if we drop back 60 times. He can't get me 10. He can get home five, and he's expected to. He's expected to beat me five times. He should if he's going to the league, right? Pittsburgh has a couple guys that, that have some, some next-level talent, um, but they were winning at a higher clip in the first half. In the second half, that ratio flipped. And now we are more consistent in our one-on-one battles on the outside at our tackle spot. We are more consistent one-on-one battles on the inside. And obviously the t- twist games got cleaned up. All of that created a cleaner pocket. It gave Sam, uh, allowed Sam to be more comfortable to step into throws, to make big plays. And then we saw the chunk plays getting us down towards the red zone. We were able to like, score some points, field goals, touchdowns. And then, like I talked about, when we opened this podcast, the mental errors were, uh, were, were ultimately what killed us on the offensive side of the ball in the second half. But the offensive production, though not lights out fireworks like it's been before, um, the offensive production was there 
enough to win this football game. We just, when we absolutely had to have it, we made dumb mental errors. You mentioned the, the offensive line for next year. And theoretically, it is an offensive line where everybody could come back. I guess you have somebody like Josh Azudu who could test his uh, pro potential as a junior. You have some grad students who could decide they, they want to move on. And um, they've, they've kind of had enough with football or the Carolina football experience. But you also have um, incoming Zach Rice, who's five-star uh, the number nine player in the country, the number one offense tackle. I just wanted to get your opinion as an idea. You got a guy, Diego Pound, sitting on the bench too right now. You know, assume he'll make a leap in, in, yeah. in development at some point. As an offensive lineman, how, when you're looking at, not looking at like Zach Rice specifically, because I don't, I don't think any of us have really watched him super closely, but as an offensive lineman in general, how tough would you say it is to play day one? once you get on campus and step up, step into an offensive line. Zach Rice isn't going to be able to play college football. I mean, he could have gone to Alabama. He could have come here. It doesn't matter where he's going to go. He's not going to be ready to play college football. Now, whether he's out there is a different story. Um, you know, there's there, there, there are things that transpire over the course of a training camp and an offseason um, and promises made in recruiting that sometimes get guys thrown onto the field quicker than they should be. Um, I don't know if any of that's taken place here. What I can tell you is that from a development standpoint, I have seen almost no offensive lineman ever be fully ready to play college football day one. You need time to develop. John Cooper was a great football player for Carolina. He's a great person. He was a great football player. Um, and he was a great teammate. And I loved playing alongside John Cooper. You could count on him. He was reliable. Um, and he was a heck of an athlete. And it showed, I mean, his, you know, where he, he was drafted, what was number seven overall? I mean, he was a player. His, his, his number is up in the ring of honor in the stadium, consensus All-American. Cooper could play. Uh, when he came from Hoggard High School, he wasn't ready to play. There's a reason he redshirted. Mm -hmm. Okay? So even a guy who's that decorated, Landon Turner, All-American, great player for us, redshirted. Garrett Reynolds. Garrett Reynolds. Garrett, Garrett, Reynolds. Garrett Reynolds played. Now you want to mm -hmm. see that you want to see you want to see what happens when you do get thrown in the fire. Garrett will tell you this. Was not ready to play. Elvis but, Doomerville snatched his soul out of his <laughs> body and threw it on the ground and pooped on it. That's mm. what happened in that Louisville game. Now, luckily, I was in high school. I didn't have to live that. But Garrett's freshman year in 05. EJ was there. EJ was at that. EJ traveled to that Louisville game. He'll tell you. Okay. And that's and Garrett. Sight. And Garrett Reynolds is a guy who turned out to be a great, another great mm -hmm. player for Carolina. Had a long NFL career. Was a draft player. Was a drafted player. Helped right? make me better. Make help make make help make made me a much me, better made, player. Made me a better player as his backup for a couple of years. Okay, the, that is proof that offensive alignment when you come in, there is just a major learning curve. A lot, some of it's physical. It's strength. Okay, but there's a lot. Unlike most positions, there is a technique component to offensive line. Um, you know, like you, uh, I'll equate it to this. You wouldn't walk into a dojo and start rolling with guys from day one. They're not going to let you because you don't know. You don't. You have no idea from a hand-to-hand -hand combat standpoint. You have no idea what you're supposed to be doing there, and you're going to get rocked. That's what there is, is. That is what offensive defensive line play is. It is hand-to-hand -hand combat, and the offensive line is. Um, defensive line, obviously, ton, tons of technique work involved, but there's also just some natural athleticism that can get you by. Natural athleticism doesn't typically, doesn't typically get you by on the offensive line. Natural athleticism is what supplements 
technically sound play. That's what makes you a guy like John Cooper or a guy like Garrett Reynolds. Um, that, that's, that's what sets you apart. But that f- the fundamentals of offensive line play take more than a year to learn. Um, and you're certainly not going to know them coming out of high school. So, you know, we talk about the offensive line next year. I would be very surprised to see a freshman. Well, let me put it this way. I wouldn't, I would be more surprised to see a true freshman starting on our offensive line next year, or even a redshirt freshman starting on our offensive line next year and be super successful. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be more surprised to see that than actually see one of them on the offensive line playing. Um, but I still think either scenario is there, there, there's not, there's not a high likelihood of it happening. Um, I will give one example of somebody who I thought was very advanced. James Hurst was somebody as a true freshman that I thought was a very advanced football player. He had the benefit of his dad played at Alabama. Uh, he had great coaching in high school. Um, he was, and he had the size and everything. James's technique, uh, you know, from a, from a fundamental standpoint was much more advanced than any true freshman offensive lineman I ever saw. James obviously turned out to be a very good player still in the league with the saints right now. I think he's starting a guard for them. Um, but you know, James, James had his own struggles, his freshman year. So again, proof that even when you are somewhat polished as a freshman, there is just a major learning curve on the offensive line that you don't necessarily see at other positions. Yeah. And the, the two examples that that kind of made me think of um, two were both heck brothers, whose whose dad's a offensive yeah. line coach where they, they come in with great fundamentals, but they both redshirted. Charlie, Charlie was a little different because he was a, a converted tight end. So there was always going to be work um, physically that he had to do, but it's an interesting perspective from you where I think, I think you're right. That offensive line is going to be the hardest one to transition from high school to the college level. But EJ, when you're looking at the defense, who, in your opinion, played well on the defensive side of the ball that led to UNC playing the way they did? Because I don't think we've mentioned any anybody specifically yet. I think I have to go with, with the guy that we always talk about, and that's Jeremiah. Because, and the reason why I say that is because I think there were a lot of people that were in the right positions and played well, and I think that goes to the leadership that he provides. I mean, I mean, he, he's leading in tackles. He's obviously filling the stat sheet, but I think his impact means a lot more. I mean, yeah, we, we did see our defense kind of hold on when he was out of the game last week, but I think his, his leadership and us holding the guys together really kind of stood out in that game. I, I started out with one of my biggest takeaways – being kind of commending these guys for their for their character, for their willingness, for their for their the way they play out there on the field, not giving up, having resiliency, having mental fortitude, and that really starts at the top. You a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, but 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 the leader in, in in the biggest link and the big dog, and that has to be a big dog and be able to run and be able to step up in these type of situations. And I mean, you can see everything. I I, I didn't see a moment or a drive where we got rattled. I mean, even when we, we had that short drive, we we were backed up our back against the wall we still came out and and fought that whole drive we didn't just roll over and give them that touchdown because they were close they had to fight crack uh, scratch and claw for that so I I really want to commend him and I mean I I think that uh, uh, it was really a cast of the usual suspects I mean a lot of guys had up and down games but I mean the impact of Storm Duck being back in that defensive lineup I mean it's really really showing I mean his leadership has been something that we've obviously been missing this whole year and yeah like as I mentioned earlier we did see some passes go over our head and give up some big plays but well he was also a penalty factory but some some of that is just rust 
Oh, the, the most and of that so, is rust. And but some it, of those, you can take that from a guy like that. Some of those I was explaining to the room I was sitting in uh, to some folks that were asking is also, you know, Dre Bly teaches these guys NFL stuff. Yeah. And there's old veteran NFL stuff that, that Dre knew when he played that even just being out of the, out of the league for a few years now, like, you know, a few years, you know, for a decade or however long it's been now that Dre's been out. But, you know, there, there has been a monumental shift in offensive and defensive football and what offenses are allowed to get away with, what defenses aren't allowed to get away with, because there's clearly been a there's clearly been an emphasis put on offensive football to make it a better fan experience, to make it more excited, more exciting. You know, we hear about we hear about that all the time. People complaining about changes to defensive rules and, and things like that that make it just much, so much more offensive friendly. Dre has clearly taught these guys old veteran NFL tricks that in college are just going to get caught because you don't <laughs> see it. You don't see little jersey tugs, and you don't you don't see little hand, you know hand swiping and stuff like that. You just don't see that from college players. It's two guys running with each other. One of them catches the ball, and the other one doesn't. I mean, that's that's how college coverage has been for years and years and years. So you know, Dre has taught these guys little veteran tricks that are just being noticed by refs because they're, as best I can tell, some of them are a little abnormal. They're not abnormal in that they're wrong. They're just abnormal in that you don't see every every player, every defensive backfield doing it. So that you know they get, they they get caught. There's a little spotlight on them, and that's that's what I think we're seeing happen. I didn't see Storm Duck for some of those penalties do anything that was egregious. I saw it was savvy, which tells me it was taught by a savvy coach, and he picked up on it. Um, and then just the refs were they were just looking for it. And once once you get once you get hit with a defensive holding once, or once you get hit with pass interference once for doing something like that, eyes are then going to be on you, and it's going to be a recurring issue. And Storm was a penalty factory for that. Yeah, you're a t- you're a target the rest of the game once once yeah. one ref catches you oh, yeah. holding the first time. But Jeremiah Gimmel he led the team in tackles, ten tackles. He had a sack, a tackle for a loss, uh, the mm. big interception at the end of the game where. Uh, it was a result of Geo Biggers being in the right spot, and Geo Biggers runs the tip drill to perfection to allow Jeremiah Gemmel to come up with a good play. Both of those guys graded out uh, fairly well on pro football focus. Jeremiah Gemmel actually led the team in a tackling grade uh, with 83.8. He had nine tackles, no missed tackles. It was just a, a pretty solid defensive performance all around when you're looking at the the advanced numbers and Another player that graded out in his limited snaps. Now he was, it was both a case where I think he was hurt at times and also um, schematically they were taking the nickel out, but Jaquarius Conley, he graded out at a 74.7. And the, the one play that I think of when you think of Jaquarius Conley from that game, it's the third and 11 where the running back uh, sneaks out of the backfield to uh, go out for a route and, Conley absolutely plants him into the ground where that that running back might still be in Heinz Field right right now in the ground <laughs> trying to get dug out of the field. But uh, EJ, I also what, want to what, shout out uh, Cedric Gray as well too. I mean that guy, that kid has really really come along from a yeah. guy who really wasn't in the lineup at the beginning of the year uh, to coming in. I think who, who stepped in for um, Asante who really out who I don't think was kind of ready for that position. But I mean he's consistently at the top of the statue not only with tackles but with his um with, with pass defenses as well as quarterback sacks and quarterback hurry. So really excited about um him kind of carry, carrying over that that great linebacker legacy we've had in our defense over the last few years. When you have players like Gray and like Conley roaming around the middle of the field and knowing that, you know, if if you're a receiver, you could get absolutely, you know, 
decapitated across the middle of the field if you're not careful. What does that kind of do for a defense, EJ? Oh, it's everything that you want to have. I mean, once we got that on our defense when we were playing, it really changed the game. When you have Bruce Carter, Quan Sturdivant, and then, and then you have you have Deontay Williams coming over the top and Denoris Cersei, who, uh, by the way, gave me a concussion. So he doesn't any anybody can get it when it comes to it comes to uh, physicality with Cersei and another another great guy, one of the best guy, one of my best teammates I've ever had. But I mean, it, it, it's a major, it, it's a big change because when, when teams can't go in the middle of that defense, when they can't throw over the middle, when they can't run the ball all up the middle that's when you start uh getting into your athletes on the outside and with the two guys we have out there tony grimes storm duck and some of the other guys we have backing them up it, it's it, it's a big change to the defense because then you can't once you try the perimeter of our defense and try the athleticism that that's really the strength we have a sideline to sideline defense with everybody that we have i don't think we have a weak link when it comes to athleticism on that defense so it's really a game changer and i mean it, it, that's just talking schematically when you want to talk about just just attitude and just what I think is 20% of, of what's going to get a defensive win. It's going out there, setting the tone, it's setting the tempo with saying, hey, this is the middle of the defense. It's the heart of our defense. If we're going to protect anything, that's what we're going to protect. As a defensive player, especially as a linebacker and a safety, you don't want to let anything get directly in front of you. You don't want to let anything get behind you. The only thing, the, the only chance of probability is sideline to sideline attacking the edges of the defense if things are being done right in the middle. And, and, and I have I have nothing but confidence in that part of our defense. So I think as that starts to evolve, as guys like Giovanni Biggers and, and some of those other guys who've really been coming along this season start to advance, and especially with the play of Cedric Gray and getting power echoes in the lineup. And I, um, and I know we're talking a lot about future, but it's, it's two games left. I mean, guys, let, let's talk about the future of this program. With those guys coming in and, and with Jaquarius being back there as well, I really think we're going to see a much improved defense. I know this is something that we've said every year, but I really do think that from what we've seen over the last few games this defense is starting to turn the corner and, and you're right it does start with with some of the play that we're getting right in the heart that heart in the middle of that defense ej then, taylor T taylor brought up a question earlier um to shift gears a little bit but maybe not too much um he brought up a, a point earlier that we just look like a totally different team night games on the road mm -hmm. and you and i had that problem our program our version of this program had that problem too where we hadn't won a game outside the state of north carolina and I can't – I don't want to say it was 10 years, but it was it was a long time until that Rutgers win on Thursday night up in Piscataway. Um, that was the first game outside the state of North Carolina, road game that we had won in God knows how long. That um, we finally got that monkey off of our back. What, in your opinion, from a, from a player's psychology standpoint, because I've thought about this and I've never come up with a good answer. From a player's psychology standpoint, what is it about road games – versus home games that makes things so much different. I mean, there's the obvious for me, there's the obvious, well, you're comfortable on your home, you know, on your home field and you're comfortable, you know, you don't have to travel and things like that. But like we didn't practice on the game field very frequently. It wasn't like we were in Keenan stadium a lot. Um, the traveling, I mean, okay. I mean, we're sleeping in a hotel versus sleeping in a dorm or an apartment, you know, like we're not at home with our parents back wherever, you know, whatever city we're from, you know what I'm saying? It might like be it's an not, upgrade hotel life. Hotel is actually many times is an upgrade. Mm -hmm. You got better food. You got things like that. But, you know, it's not that there's not the travel never took a lot out of me. I didn't feel mm -hmm. like road performances were any different than home performances from that standpoint. And then, like I said, from a familiarity standpoint with the field, that really wasn't an issue either because mm -hmm. um, we'd played on turf. We'd played on grass. And really, that's the only difference is the surface. Um, so in your mind, what is the psychology behind 
road struggles and like for us, like night road struggles um, compared against like what we experienced when we played, which was we hadn't won a game outside the state of North Carolina in what felt like forever. Well, well, for me, it's something where I really tried to make I, I really tried to stop differentiating my travel schedule and my habits on the road versus my habits at home. So I tried to verse on home games. So uh, not many people know that uh, we actually stayed in the hotel um, when we had home games as well. So I would try to set my days up exactly the same. So if we had a 12 o'clock game at home versus a 12 o'clock game on the road. Um, I, I, I tried to set up the same thing. I didn't allow myself those creature comforts for um, those home games. I would set my bags up the same way. I was I, I would leave my home and approach for a home game, approaching it just like I'm going on the road and I won't be back for, for the next couple of days. And if I leave something that's there, it's just kind of going through those mental gymnastics to put yourself in a place to say, okay, no matter what stadium we're playing in, that this is where I need to be at a certain point in time uh, coming into game day. This is where I need to be reading. This is the point where I know I need to be looking at my plays this is the point where i know i need to put that away and focus on and start going through the middle gymnastics if i'm in this situation i'm gonna do this start thinking about my pass rush move start thinking about my pad level start thinking about all those other things and like and, and michael tell you like he and i had the 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 pleasure of going against each other pregame a lot and we'll tell you we, we had a routine we did every mm-hmm. week we yep. did one play hard we did a, the second one half speed and the third play we basically just stood up and touched shoulder pads I mean and that's we did that every week not because we were trying to give each other a break but that was the routine of, of that we kind of knew we said okay we can come out here we can get this adrenaline out and now we can start focusing on our steps we can, we can focus on our steps and fitting up on this next one because I mean we're starters I mean we're, we're not trying to win a rep in pregame or anything like that we're trying to get our steps right. I mean, we're not going to make a tackle here. So I think doing all of those things is really setting you're setting yourself up for success. And that's something that you had to learn. That's something I didn't really start learning until I'll say that the end of my junior season and I, that I carried over to my senior season, even to the point that where I had the same routine on from Thursday through Saturday, um, Saturday, um, to the end of the game. So I really think it's just muscle memory is getting in that repetitive state. It's just doing the same things over and over again. I mean, even Michael tell you like some of those veteran guys in the NFL, some of their, their game day routines are crazy, but it's just something that they may have done when they had a really good game. And it's something that they can mimic at home and on the road. So I think that's really the big thing is um, like you said, we're not practicing in our stadium on our game field. We're practicing on practice field and mm-hmm. every stadium is going to have its own unique challenge. So I don't think it's anything as, as minute as that. I really think it's just the mental state that we are going into that game. It, it can be a little bit different on the road versus that. Yeah, for me, I mean, it, it looks like, honestly, it boils down to a lot of coincidence. You know, everyone wants to look for a common thread, which is what my question was. If you'd ever seen a common thread between, you know, struggles on the road or even spe- more specifically, more granularly night games on the road versus, mm-hmm. you know, you, your success at home. And we are a totally different team at home, it feels like, than it is night games on the road this season. Oh, yeah. Um, and we, like I, like I mentioned, we had our own struggles in our own program, but, um, for me, it's, I honestly think because all those things are true and we were, it was hammered into our brains that like, Mm -hmm. we do that, like keep your routine the same. We stayed in a hotel. We stayed in the same hotel. It was always a Marriott. Um, it was always a Marriott, you know, we always had the same food. We know we took the same bus lines, you know, we flew on the same plane. Everything was the same all the time. Um, nothing was ever different. So for me, frankly, I think it's just a lot of coincidence. There is not a common thread all the time between struggles on the road versus success at home and why there's that um, discrepancy. I think really it's just, you know, stuff happens. And, and for whatever reason, there's just a very odd coincidence, uh, but it's one of those like, you know, correlation is not causation kind of things. 
Yeah, road road night games too. I think it's easier for uh, more fans of the other team to kind of uh, get behind their team and support their team. And it's it's something that you kind of have to get used to going into another stadium. And, you know, you have fans that aren't cheering for you and they're not rooting for you. And the other the other side of that is those fan the other team kind of feeds off those fans. And it's something that you kind of have to adjust to as a as a college football player. One one story I could think of quickly um, was from the 2015 team where we were we were beating up everybody so badly and we didn't really we didn't struggle on the road we didn't struggle at home but we went to NC State to close the year and at that time i think we were i think we were 10 and 1 and we're in the we're in the tunnel at Carter Finley this is why i still really i i really don't go back to Carter Finley if i really don't have Me to <laughs> we're in the tunnel at, at Carter Finley and so, like a water bottle comes flying down and like a water bottle hit somebody on the team and like like it's going everywhere and we like looked down at the bottle and it was like it was clearly pee in the bottle so like people are just like throwing stuff at us and we went back in the locker room and like the talk on the team was like we are gonna ruin every fan's day here and play play like we're pissed off and just embarrass this team and by the end of the first quarter i know the final score was a lot closer than what the game said but like after the first quarter it was 35 7 and like you, you could tell NC State knew they they had no business being in that being in that game, and it was just a case of uh, we we went into that game knowing that there was going to be you know third I don't know how many people Carter Finley uh, fits, but we knew everybody in that stadium was going to be rooting against us except for the the small section of our parents and our friends and family that came to the game. But um, I think I think playing on the road and is just kind of getting used to. Um, being being the team that nobody wants to see win. And the other story that I, I had that I wanted to mention quick when we were talking about the um, Jaquarius Conley being able to absolutely level somebody across the middle of the field. When you have somebody like that who puts fear in receivers, like you need as many of those as possible. I remember, um, I think it was my first year on the team in 2013, we had Kareem Martin, who was who was in that like hybrid, like linebacker DN type role, and <laughs> Kareem turned time. out to be a player. Man, I didn't. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna go, I mean, Kareem, Kareem would be mad at me for saying this, but when he was a true freshman, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see that progression happening. <laughs> it turned out, but again, there's proof. True freshman, you never know what they're gonna be because there's a learning Ronald curve Graf on finest, man. <laughs> yeah, but on the offensive and defensive line, there's a huge good learning curve. Kareem Martin, yeah. another good example. And I think in one practice I had, I think I had like a slant route and I'm, I'm going across the slant. I'm like, I'm kind of confident that I'm open. And at the last second, I see Kareem from the defensive end spot drop back into coverage. And like, I just got alligator arms. Like my, my arms are like crawling back into my body and he just hits me and rolls over the top of me. And I remember like just getting up, like the defense was fired up and, I just remember getting up like, do I really love football? Because I don't think I do. <laughs> when you have guys football. like that in the middle do of your love, defense. Do you love football? <laughs> John Bunning, do you love football? When you have guys on defense that make the offensive players question how much they love football, I think that's what you see with Jaquarius Conley from this game and uh, the, the last year's game against Miami. I remember he had a couple of big hits in the backfield. Um but Mike, the from from the Pittsburgh game, 
Mac Brown in his post-game press conference, he said that he he wishes that he went for it on the the fourth and two instead of kicking the field goal and playing for overtime. What, what was what was your take kind of in the moment and um, with not not playing the result, but what were you thinking at the time? Uh, I mean, so we went for a fourth down, um, fourth quarter, I think it was. It was fourth and short. We were on the we we're in the green zone, so we were like. 30-yard line-ish, 40, 35-yard line, I think. Fourth and short. And uh, and we run a – we run – it was either a wheel or it was just a go. I can't remember what it was, a nine route, I think, to Justin Olson. We take a shot into the end zone. We needed like a yard. It wasn't even a full two yards. It was like a yard and a half. Mm-hmm. We took a shot at Justin Olson. You know, God bless Justin Olson, but like – Josh Downs, uh, Antoine Green already had two touchdowns at that point, 100 yards receiving. You know, why was that the primary read? Like, why, why was that the call? So do I think we should have gone for it on fourth down down there and chased points? Not if that was the way we were going to approach fourth downs. I'm serious. I mean, and no disrespect to Justin Olsen. Like, he's coming along. He's getting better. But we have established guys who were, who were who have produced in the past. Josh Downs, we know are reliable. Josh Downs and guys who had produced literally that game. Antoine Green, um, and you've got guys like Kamari Morales, who for the most part is a reliable receiver. Mm-hmm. You got this Nesbit kid. I didn't even see him touch the field on Thursday um, at at the tight end spot. Um, and we've got we've got some players who can play. You know, and obviously, and then you've got Ty Chandler, who we are still not using in the passing game, um, despite thinking four weeks ago that we were going to start using him. So we have a lot of options, and our choice in that situation, in a gotta-have-it situation, was to take a shot from 30-plus yards out at a touchdown to, a, a, to an unproven player, who, again, I think is getting better, when you have other options at your disposal. Um, I think... No, I mean, no, man. Like, we're going to get cute on fourth down down there. We have uh, – no. Um, my personal opinion is just go ahead and take those points there. I'm also not a fan of chasing points. So, you know, we chased points earlier, and this is the analytics thing. We chased points earlier in the game. Um, two-point conversion. On the two-point conversion, and had we not done that and just kicked the extra point, we would have had a one-point lead at the end of that game. Mm-hmm. And then we're taking a knee. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not having a – we're not, we're not looking to score touchdowns. You know, we have a, we have a, we have a one point lead all, all everything else considered. We have a one point lead at the end of that game. And then we just got to stop. We got to stop Kenny Pickett and them on that last drive and, and we're done. Um, so I, I'm not a fan of chasing points. I never have been. I'm not an analytics guy. I think Moneyball was an entertaining movie and it's a terrible idea in practice. Um, but, you know, kudos to Brad Pitt. You know, he managed to change an entire freaking the entire sports industry across all sports. Yeah, if you if you had more confidence in your short yarded situate uh, scenarios, I think you you definitely go for it. Um, but kicking the field goal there, you you had been outplaying Pittsburgh for the better part of three quarters. So it's like, which why is what not? makes me think maybe maybe we should have gone for it. But you know, at the same time, it's like then then we went for it, and what I was provided, what I was presented with, when we were going to take that risk. 
with the risk that I was presented with, the response to that risk was taking a shot from the green zone to an unproven receiver when all we needed was a yard and a half. Like, we, I'm sorry, guys. Like, you know, we needed four and a half feet, and instead we throw the ball 35 yards in the end zone. Like, I just, I can't, I can't get, I can't get behind that. Yeah, I think you're seeing an offense that this late into the season is still trying to figure out its red zone um, situations and its short yard situations when you're playing without somebody like Javante Williams, like if fourth and two, when you have Javante Williams in the backfield, it's, it's an easy decision. You hand the ball off to him and let him fight for two yards. They don't, they don't really have somebody like that who can erase some of the offensive lines mistakes or, if the offensive line doesn't have the push where even, even somebody like Michael Carter, who, who could erase a lot of those mistakes with his patience and his vision, Carolina doesn't really have anything like that. So I, I, I don't have a problem either way with what Carolina decided as long as it was, um, as long as it was decisive and there wasn't really um, a, any uh, hesitation to what they were going with, I, I wouldn't have had a problem either way. Um, always a great time to break out the Philly special. I feel like the Philly special is, is so overplayed at this point, but I'm, Oh, anytime I see the Philly special, when the quarterback starts leaking out, I'm like, Oh, let's go. Well, part of, part, I mean, here's, here's the thing. I mean, part of our, I mean, that's, I agree with you, but part of my issue with like our short yarded situations, which and our short yard, our handling of short yarded situations is we do every single thing out of the shotgun. So like a Philly special, is just a staple play when you're only going to be out of the shotgun under all circumstances. We, you know, and I, I don't know that we're incapable of doing it out of the shotgun. I know that it's possible because I've done it in multiple different offenses uh, and I've seen it done in many, many, many different offenses, but moving the pocket, like changing the launch point. Like, why are we not? Sam doesn't roll out. I don't think we have a design boot in this offense. And if we do, I haven't ever seen us run it. Um, so we don't, uh, there, there's no, there's no boot when you've got, and if Sam's getting killed in the pocket, we're not moving the pocket for him. Okay. We're not going under center ever. And yet when we go under the two times we've gone under center this season, we've been successful. We never go under center We're we're starting at, um, so again, let's go, let's, let's use the example of down there on the goal line, right? We're fourth and two. All right. Or whatever, you know, whatever down and two down and one short yardage we're we're snapping the ball four and a half to five yards deep in the shotgun handing it off at six to get one so you have to get seven yards to get one yard under that under that circumstance why would you ever do that it's i mean this is not and i'm not going to question phil longo he gets paid more money to coach than i'll ever get paid because i refuse to be a coach but what i do see from a player's standpoint is why, if I need to get one yard, are you asking me to get six? It just doesn't make any sense to me. If we've got a quarterback getting absolutely destroyed in the pocket because his offensive line can't, you know, can't keep anybody off the ground for some reason, why are we not moving the pocket? Help the offensive line. Help the quarterback. Help the offense in short yardage situations by shortening that mesh point, by, sh- by shortening that play. It makes the play happen faster, number one. And from a physical distance standpoint, it cuts the play down by 80%. Um, I just I have a lot of I have a lot of gripes there. So all of that to say again, like, do you go for it down there? Frankly, I mean, I guess I like I like your answer about the decisiveness. Like just make the decision and go with it. I'm fine with that. I like that from a you know, from a from a philosophy standpoint. 
but also philosophically, um, no, not when you have to have the game, do you go for it down there on fourth and short when the, when you know that every option you have is starting five yards deep from five yards back from the ball, when you only need one yard to get ahead. I mean, it's not, it makes no sense to me at all. Just, just modern football that and the, uh, I mean, I goal guess. line fades. I'm, I'm so out on goal line fades. It's, it's unbelievable. I've been out on goal line fades since 2004. Those As, two, I mean, if I could erase, if I could get two things in football, it would be goal line fades and lining up in shotgun when you when you need like one yard. I mean, who who caught it against Virginia Tech in 2015? Was that Bug? No, that Quinshot. was uh, that was Quinshot. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Let's go ahead and just say this now. And it, look, look, Quinshot was a great receiver. That that play is 50 percent luck. And if yeah. and and the and the way you're on the 50 percent success side is if you got a six foot five receiver who's built like a linebacker, like Quinshot, okay, and who can jump out of the gym. Like, that's how that works. Um, but, I mean, I've, I've, been, I've, been, I've, been off, I've been off goal line fades forever, and I'm certainly off shotgun down there in the red zone. That makes – it'll never make any sense to me. All right, to end the podcast, as always, it's everybody's favorite segment, Say Something Nice. EJ, we'll start with you. Well, this one's easy for me this week, so I just have to really choose the one um... – that I've come. Um, so I'll say over the last two weeks, our defense has shown over the last, I'll say five quarters, our defense has shown some semblance of consistency with being able to stop high powered offenses. I mean, let, 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 let's take this for what it is. We played against the two best offenses we're probably going to see this season and two of the top offenses in the conference and in the country. And for us to be able to go out there, yeah, we gave up that, that, that amount of points last week, but when we needed to get stops, we got stops. And that play carried over from that fourth quarter on into the game against Pittsburgh. So I'm very encouraged about what I saw. And it looks like these guys are kind of are, are paying attention, watching film, having carryover, and trying to be a little bit more intentional and consistent about the things that they can control. Um, and, and that's what it's about on defense is controlling what you can control, keeping your eyes on your luggage. And I think we're doing a much better job of that. So um, I say something nice is that our defense has been relatively consistent over the last five quarters. Yeah, Pittsburgh is the number three scoring offense after this week. They're down from their number one spot because of Carolina holding them. And Wake Forest is up to uh, number two as a scoring offense now. Carolina played a help, uh, helping hand in probably shooting them up a couple of rankings, but they did do a good job in the fourth quarter against them. Uh, Mike, what's your say something nice? Uh, from a fundamental standpoint, from an assignment standpoint, um, our offense as a whole, but particularly our offensive line, made halftime adjustments and came out in the second half against Pitt and played substantially better. Um, now that, that, that is not to mention any of the mental errors that ultimately killed us that, you know, many of which were the offensive line's fault, but from an assignment standpoint, they made those adjustments. They came out, they look like a totally different line from a technique standpoint and from a production standpoint in the second half against Pitt. I hope that carries forward the next couple of weeks. Yeah. I'm going with uh, Mike. You mentioned him earlier. I was saving him for this spot. Anton Green, who over the past three games has 14 catches for 274 yards and four touchdowns. He's taken a, a ton of pressure off Josh Downs as, as the number one receiver, has given Sam Howell um, another option to go to in the offense. And he's, he's not even just another option at this point. He, he is a, a great receiver who's making 
tough contested catches. It's it's a night and day difference from where he was week one. It's he's a player who he's going to keep getting better each and every week. Um, he's he's got great hands. He's got great size. He's got great speed. Where when I Jason Staples is on is in this camp too with me with uh, Antoine Green, where it's like when when you when you're making a wide receiver in a lab. green is as close to what you want your wide receivers to look like so when he doesn't have production it's 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 frustrating from a coaching or an analyst position because you're like this guy has everything you need to be a great wide receiver and with him I think it was a case of him just needing the confidence he mentioned it before the season he mentioned it um, at times during the season I'm pretty sure in press conferences where you know when he got hurt his freshman year I think at Syracuse he kind of lost that confidence in himself and in his ability and what you've seen from him the past three games is is a really confident receiver who trusts his ability and um, I I think he's been one of the brightest spots as as this year has kind of closed out and I think it's going to be interesting um, for him with a uh, choice to make where does he come back next year because with with last year being a free year for everybody he theoretically could come back. And when you're breaking in a new quarterback, you, you want as many experienced wide receivers as possible. I know a lot of Carolina fans are holding out hope that um, the other green um, who that they're recruiting, the receiver, uh, I think a four-star receiver comes to Carolina to maybe play day one with a new quarterback. You don't want a new quarterback and new receivers. You want, if you if you have a new quarterback, you want experienced receivers. If you have new receivers, kind of like you had this year, you want an experienced quarterback. So it's nice to have that balance. And I think if you're going into next year with Anton Green and with Josh Downs as your one-two punch, that, that helps out uh, a new quarterback that's getting broken into. And I, I don't know how Carolina would account for that numbers wise and attrition. If somebody like Anton green decides to come back and kind of needing to open up a spot somewhere. But I think if you're the staff at this point, if, if green wants to come back, you, you take him back based off the production that you've kind of seen. Um, but that concludes the podcast for this week. UNC plays on Saturday against Wofford who by <laughs> Wofford by FCS standards is bad there. The Terriers are coming into Chapel Hill with a one and nine record, but UNC Terriers. the Terriers. That's, yeah. That's cute. <laughs> that back in Keenan stadium with the Tar Heels playing to clinch their postseason birth. We'll be back to talk about it as always guys. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Good to see you, man. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon. When a thought hits you, I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.